0: On to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Laura Shifter to the show. Laura Shifter is a senior fellow leading K-12 climate action with the Aspen Institute, a lecturer on education at the Harvard Graduate School of Education and a fellow with the Century Foundation. Previously, she worked as a policy and research consultant, a senior education and disability advisor for Representative George Miller of California on the Committee on Education and Labor, and an education fellow for Senator Chris Dodd on the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee. Laura, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great, Raj. Thanks so much. How are you?
0: Laura, I'm doing wonderful. Thank you for asking. Laura, where are you currently located?
1: Um, I am located in Arlington, Virginia.
0: How's the weather up there?
1: It is unseasonably warm and gorgeous.
0: (laughs) You know, I'm in Dallas, and today, this morning, when I took the kids to school, it was 71 degrees. So I think unseasonably warm across the nation right now.
1: Yes, yes. Certainly seems to be um, that way this week in Arlington.
0: And I think it's going to be appropriate for our conversation, which we'll get into later, But before we do, I'd like to open the show by asking my guests the following question. If you were asked to share something interesting about yourself, what would it be?
1: So um, one thing that's interesting about myself that I like to share and let people know is that I am dyslexic and um, actually grew up having a lot of difficulty reading. Um, And I think that my dyslexia actually greatly impacts the way that I think about and work on issues today.
0: So that is interesting. I have a couple of friends, one very close to me who's dyslexic. He actually runs quite a successful business. His biggest challenge, and I'm going to ask a question for him then, is that how do you handle your emails?
1: So I actually use a technology. I think one of the things that's amazing is um, how uh, technology has really advanced to help people with dyslexia. But I use um, speech to text and text to speech frequently when when I'm dealing with emails. So um, to read aloud my emails, I use the text-to-speech feature all the time, um, and my computer reads the emails aloud to me, and it makes things a lot easier.
0: <laughs> you know, you're right, Um, and I will convey that to him. I think he does something very similar. But I'm always just curious because, as you mentioned, now that we have technology to help people with, I'm going to say not learning problems, but my daughter has a very special name for it. She says people are uniquely gifted. But, I like that. Um, prior to technology. I just kind of wonder in my mind how people were able to maneuver through some of the required reading, you know, in school and just in everyday life.
1: Yeah, it was certainly difficult growing up. I think one of the things that I was um, very fortunate to have was um, parents who really um, understood that I just needed access to material, that it wasn't that I was any less intelligent than my other sisters. Um, So they really worked hard. My sister actually used to record books on tape for me, um, and she would help me with reading by doing that. Um, and I was lucky to have a lot of teachers who uh, also recognized my ability to learn and work with me to get access to the material uh, so that I could demonstrate what I know.
0: That really is amazing. Do you still have the recordings?
1: Um, I think my mom does still have some of, the, some of the recordings that my sister had
0: made, yes. That must be really special.
1: Yes, it certainly is, and you know, I think, I think my parents and I think my teachers um, all the time for really helping me uh, get to where I am, and um, I just I feel so fortunate that um, you know I was able to have the academic trajectory that I did, and one of the things I I have been working on for a long time is trying to figure out ways to actually have more students be able to have um, success in their academic trajectory as well, and have teachers be able to hold them to high expectations, but ensure that they have the tools that they need um, to reach those expectations. Which
0: well, it sounds beautiful. And speaking of academics, can you give the audience an overview of K-12 Climate Action and your role at the organization?
1: Yes. Um, so we re- recently launched, launched an initiative called K-12 Climate Action. And our goal with K-12 Climate Action is to unlock the power of the education sector uh, to be a force towards climate action, solutions, and environmental justice. I think what we have really seen is that the education sector um, has not been very vocal in its role to address climate change. And likewise, large-scale climate solutions haven't really considered the role that education can play. Um, but there's both a large need and a big opportunity. There's a, a large need because our education sector is a large public sector with a considerable environmental footprint. Um, our, public, our public schools um, are the largest consumers of energy and public sector buildings. The school bus fleet uh, with 480,000 buses is larger than um, all municipal fleets across the country. Um, And schools serve over 7 billion meals annually. So there's a sizable environmental footprint. Um, There's also a lot of need around adaptation. I think one of the things that we've seen with COVID is that our schools and our communities are not very well prepared to deal with disruptions to our school system um, and learning. And yet we know that climate impacts are going to increasingly cause disruptions for our schools as well. Um, So we really need to be thinking about how we adapt and prepare our schools more for climate change. But there's also a large opportunity. Um, Education has been identified as a critical social tipping point um, for actually moving society to address climate change. And with over 50 million children in public schools, that's nearly one in every six Americans in our public schools, um, that as we consider needs around mitigation and adaptation, we actually have a real opportunity to help educate um, and support teaching and learning so that children and youth can um, develop the skills that they need to advance a more sustainable society in their future. Um, So what we're really working to do with K-12 Climate Action is uh, to learn more about the needs and opportunities to engage the education sector in this work. And we've launched a commission um, with a lot of experts in the field of education and the environment field, policymakers, to come together around an action plan to support our education sector in moving towards climate action solutions and environmental justice.
0: Now, you mentioned 50 million school children. I had the pleasure a few months ago of interviewing Glenn Branch. He's the deputy director of the National Center for Science Education. And he enlightened me by sharing that there are over 13,000 school districts in America. And essentially, they all march to the beat of their own drum. How, or perhaps the better question is, like what is the plan to get to these school districts and, you know, essentially find out what they're doing and then influence them to adopt the K-12 action plan?
1: Yeah, so, you know, the way that school districts and schools operate is there there is a lot of um, local autonomy and local flexibility, but there are roles that different levers play. So the school district has a critical role in determining, you um, certain decisions around things like curriculum in schools. Um, The state also plays a critical role in determining things like state standards and setting expectations for what students should know and be be able to do. States can also play a considerable role um, around funding things like infrastructure um, improvements in schools as well, and set certain policies that help schools mitigate their environmental impact. And even even though the federal government's role in education is smaller um, than the state and local role, the federal government also plays a critical role as well. And the role that the federal government plays is usually geared towards um, helping advance equity in schools and providing supports for those students who are uh, furthest behind. Um, and those levers can also really be used in this context. Um, there's also, I think, a real opportunity in the thinking about the federal role right now for schools and thinking about the transition to a Biden-Harris administration, um, an opportunity to help support schools in this work. I think there's been a lot of talk about the Biden-Harris administration, um, investing in infrastructure across the country. And if you're investing in infrastructure improvements in schools, you can actually use this as an opportunity to install things like solar um, and really help schools uh, move closer to net zero energy consumption, which has a lot of benefits then for school districts locally uh, because it helps ensure that um, funding for school districts is going more towards teaching and learning in the classroom rather than. On things like energy costs, um, which currently energy costs is are the second highest cost for school districts behind salaries, so it's a sizable cost. Um, so I think you know, in using all these different levers, I think it's thinking strategically about about um, how you can best support schools in this work, and and really thinking about too. I think there's going to be a lot of receptivity among. Um, schools and school districts in doing this work in large part because children and youth in these school districts have shown that there's a, a large desire to move towards climate action. So if you get the people in the building wanting to move in this way, um, there should be a lot of opportunity to engage people in
0: this work. So you mentioned mitigation a couple of times. Can you give an example or a couple of examples of mitigation? And you also you also mentioned net zero are there any schools out there right now that are actually net zero?
1: Um, so first, uh, thinking about mitigation in schools, I think thinking about energy and infrastructure um, within school, school systems is a huge component of thinking about mitigation in schools. I mean, as I said, energy is the um, second highest cost for school districts. So actually thinking about supporting schools in retrofits to become um, more efficient and, of course, healthy as well, so maintaining a focus on healthy learning environments for children, Um, but thinking about ways to first become more efficient and then also utilize things like renewable energy in schools. There's huge potential. Um, You know, there's a a, a school district um, who recently adopted solar panels in Arkansas, and actually, they're using the savings that they're making um, from the energy costs and tri- and transferring that money to actually be teacher raises. Um, and so, there's benefits both in terms of the environment on on mitigation in that component, as well as um, for the teachers in the school district. Um, other issues on mitigation, you know, I think thinking about transportation and actually ensuring that we have, um, clean, uh, transportation and, and transitioning diesel buses, um, to electric buses is a huge opportunities for opportunity for school. And thinking about food consumption in school is another area where schools really need to think about mitigation. Um, you have, you know, the procurement of food. So our schools, um, are schools getting their food uh, locally um, or sustainable food? You have kind of the decisions around what is being eaten in the cafeteria and and what impact that has. Um, And then there's also thinking about what you do with the food waste. Um, And there are steps that you can take to, you know, reduce the environmental impact of of each of those along the way. Um, And then to your last question about, you know, net zero schools, there are, Um, several net zero schools. I believe we just released a state policy landscape that looked at some of these issues across states. Um, And there, I believe it's 11 states currently have net zero schools in their state. Um, There is a net zero school actually here in Arlington, Virginia, it's called Discovery Elementary. Um, And they use a combination of solar, geothermal, building design, Um, to actually be net zero. And the amount that the school district saves covers the cost of two starting teacher salaries in the district. Um, So it actually has a big impact then for the school district itself.
0: Speaking of teachers, I have a third grader, fifth grader, and seventh grader. And I can't tell you that any one of them has come home and said, you know, today we're learning about climate change in school. How do we get the messaging down into the curriculum to the teachers?
1: So I think the most important thing to help teachers in the classroom with thinking about teaching climate change is to look to the best practices that are occurring. So there are teachers and students um, that are actually engaged in this work all across the country right now. And I think one of the things that we're trying to do uh, through K-12 climate action is trying to elevate and share the best practices that are occurring. So, you know, there's a lot of research that's been done about teaching climate change in science curriculum, for instance, um, and how to best support schools and teachers in that work. Um, and several States actually have state standards that do teach climate change through the science curriculum. Um but there's a lot less that's gone on out there in thinking about how to teach climate change across the curriculum. And one place that they've done that really well is actually New Jersey. And New Jersey, just this summer, adopted cross curricular state standards that address climate change. So it provides supports for teachers and thinking about what students should know um, in English cl- class when you know, how to engage students in conversations about climate change in English class or in social studies. So thinking about it more broadly.
0: I think the social studies piece is very important. Can you elaborate on that, please?
1: Yeah. So I believe there are five states across the country right now that currently do include climate change in their social studies standards. Um, And what are those things, what that really helps Um, students do is they're learning about the impacts of climate change on things like government or the impact of of climate change on the economy Um, and thinking about it broader than just, you know, the um, science behind climate change. It's actually thinking about the impact of climate change on society and really helping students think about how climate change has these bigger societal impacts Um, and what it is that we need to do as a society to actually address and approach climate change.
0: Now, if there are parents like myself listening, how can we get involved or what can we do to perhaps help share the message?
1: Um, So one of the things that would be great to do is is we want to learn more about some of that great work that's going on across the country. Um, So we'd love to have parents um, or educators or students Come to k12climateaction.org and tell us what their schools are doing or tell us what they think schools should be doing on this work. We really want to build into this action plan um, input from from people's experiences across the country. Um, So we'd love to hear more about what is currently going on across the country.
0: Now, does the K-12 Climate Action Plan also address jobs or future jobs in the sector?
1: Yeah, so... um, You know, one of the things that our education system does is is, uh, a component of that is career and technical education. Um, And one area that we recently looked at was how career and technical education programs are currently preparing uh, children and youth for jobs in environmental sustainability and clean energy. And there's a considerable amount of variability across the country um, for how career and technical education programs are preparing students currently. Um, So there's a real, one of the things that we're learning about through K-12 Climate Action is how career and technical education programs can better um, support students in being prepared for green jobs in the future.
0: So recently we've been engaging with quite a few universities through our show, speaking with professors that are teaching perhaps environmental science or engineering, Because what we've done or what I've tried to do very consciously with the show is cover different industries, topics, segments, you know, in the broader climate change or clean tech area sectors, because we want to perhaps highlight different entry points for students that can engage from a career perspective.
1: Yeah, and I think that that there are um, components that can be built into K twelve education as well to help students do that. And you know, when we think about the the jobs that are going to need a different perspective for environmental sustainability, I think it's you know certainly things like engineering and um, <clears throat> some of those clean energy jobs, like you know solar technicians or or solar installers or wind turbine technicians. Um, but there's also going to be a huge need for a different mindset on sustainability for people in traditional business um, and for people in politics. Um, so really thinking about what are those skills and those mindsets that people will need to have in the future about humans' impact on the environment. Um, it's really going to be cross-cutting, and, and we need to ensure that our school's are providing um, students with those skills so that whatever field they end up in in the future, they will have a sustainability mindset.
0: And you know, you mentioned politics and <clears throat> the recent Biden-Harris win. There's a lot of um, a lot of emotions right now post-election. How do we, how do we perhaps, or how do you share this message, removing it from politics?
1: Well, you know, I think there's a lot at stake for people all across the country. Um, in thinking about these issues, I think, you know, as we think about things like um, mitigation, for instance, and, and supporting schools towards reducing their environmental footprint, um, that that benefits taxpayer dollars, uh, it benefits taxpayers, um, it, ma- it makes sure that local taxes are, you know, going to schools. Um, to support teaching and learning, which is better for everyone, especially when we're facing um, the likelihood of real economic shortfalls for our school districts in the years to come. Actually thinking about how to use those those dollars more effectively to support teaching and learning can have benefits for everyone. Um, I also think really thinking about these issues around adaptation are going to be critical for people across the country. I think you know, the climate impacts that we've seen uh, don't don't discriminate um, about where they're impacting people based on party lines. Um, and I think thinking about how to um, better equip our school systems to be more resilient in preparation for climate impacts is going to be critical for everyone. And I also think, you know, thinking about the jobs of the future and thinking about what um, what our next generation workforce really needs, a lot of people want to make sure that the U.S. remains competitive, um, that our children are able to access good paying jobs and actually having a mindset around sustainability is going to help them do that. Um, And so I think, you know, if we try and step back from the politics and really think about the benefits of supporting our schools and doing this work, there's an opportunity to bring more people in.
0: I strongly agree with you. There's a big opportunity. I think there's room for everyone.
1: Yeah, yeah. I just think, you know, I, I I, think, it. you know, if we can get break down some of those barriers and move past some of the debates and really start to see what the opportunities are for people, um, it will help build a bridge.
0: Yes, it will. So, Laura, getting to the crux of our conversation, the why behind what you do, you know, earlier in the conversation, you mentioned dyslexia. But, you know, looking at your LinkedIn profile, Harvard graduate, so obviously didn't hold you back. But now you're here running K-12 Climate Action Plan. What's your why? What motivated you to come on board to this program?
1: Yeah, so um actually, you know, most of my background has been in education. It's been in education policy and specifically special education. Um, That was my area of focus for a long time. And then, When the IPCC came out with their report on 1.5 degrees warming and um, the media kind of splashed that out a little bit more, Um, that was the first time I think it really hit me how critical these issues were. And I know there are so many people across the country who have been saying the same stuff for years, um, and I maybe came to this a little bit later, but that was when it hit me in the face how important the issue was. And I remember just sitting down with my husband that night um, and he's been you know, arguing for a long time that I, I really need to think more about these issues and focus on it. And I just remember sitting down with him and he was just, you know, oh, finally, Laura, you understand. Um, and that moment of clarity just made me feel like for me to feel like my work is purposeful, I knew I had to do something on these issues. Um, and I started I started researching different environmental organizations. I started,, um, you know, trying to figure out how I could lend myself to this work. Um, and actually the opportunity kind of clicked for me when Jay Inslee announced he was, um, running for president. And he said on day one, he would ask every department to submit their plan to address climate change. And it hit me, you know, the department of education, we don't really have a plan to address climate change. I work with all these people in, in the education policy space, and, and we don't really talk about it enough. Um, but there is a really big need and an opportunity to push schools in this work. So maybe this is a way that I can get involved. Um, Maybe I can start facilitating some conversations with the people that I work with and see if we can try and bring people together and mobilize people to recognize that education both has a responsibility to move towards climate action and also see education as a key pillar, um, as a climate solution. Um, and so over the next year and a half, I really started just talking to a lot of different people, um, you know, learning more about where this work is already occurring in the country, um, learning more about, uh, different stakeholders in this space and, um, started connecting further with the Aspen Institute to think about and and build out this plan. Um, And so I've, I've been working on it now, I guess, uh, almost two years um, in thinking about this plan. And it's really exciting to see, you know, how far we've been able to come in the amount of time since this was just an idea. Um, But we also still have a long way to go uh, to really help help ensure that our 98,000 public schools are true models of sustainability.
0: Well, two years into it, what are some of the most most valuable lessons that you would say you've learned about yourself in the journey?
1: You know, I think uh, certainly one valuable lesson is to not give up. I think, um, you know, I I feel like with this path, a lot of it took a lot of meetings and conversations and and trying to talk to different people and float a concept, get feedback, integrate it. Um, and there are certain points where I feel like you you think that you've run out of people to talk to um, because you have so many different meetings and conversations, but then there's always that next person to talk to. So I think it's it's sometimes just continuing to kind of persevere. Um, even though you might have a lot of ups and downs on the journey and you might have people that don't respond or, um, or maybe give you feedback that's critical. And it's figuring out how to kind of make the most of that to push a concept and an idea forward and, and keep figuring out ways um, to learn from the feedback that you're getting and kind of move things forward. Um, and that, that perseverance has been has been tough, especially since a lot of my background has been more in the education side of things. And I've had a very steep learning curve on the environmental side of things. Um, but it's just to continue to keep learning and, and learning from different people along the way.
0: Well, I, as a parent, appreciate your perseverance.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. Now I, know, now, I know it's a relatively new organization. But let's move into the future. Let's say it's 2030, magic wand. What does the future hold for K-12 climate action? What does it look like? What have you accomplished?
1: You know, what I I would really like to see accomplished um, that far out are some real policy changes across the country to help support our schools towards sustainability. So I think kind of across all of those buckets, you know, right now, I believe it's a little over 5% of schools use solar by 2030. I think 100% of schools that can use solar, I think should be using solar at that point. Um, I think it's really pushing more schools so that every state across this country has a net zero school, um, if not multiple by 2030. Um, I think you know, it's making significant headway, if not complete headway in transitioning school buses to electric. Um, I also think it's, you know, ensuring that uh, students are learning about climate change across the curriculum. I think one of the things I said is one state right now has standards that address climate change across the curriculum, New Jersey. And by 2030, it would be great to see A lot more states have those standards, if not all of those states have those standards, and that teachers are prepared and supported and help teaching the the content across the curriculum. I think um, there's just so much potential for how far we can go on this. Um, And given how engaged and excited youth are, I think it's really critical um, that that we make this push in schools to help um, support and provide the opportunity for youth to help um, lead us to solutions.
0: Well, I for one look forward to seeing your vision come to fruition. My last question, and it could be professional or personal, if you could share some advice or words of wisdom, and you mentioned perseverance earlier, and you also mentioned how you dealt with the challenges of being dyslexic. If you could share some advice or words of wisdom with the audience, what would it be? You
1: know, I think I think one thing I would say is that this is one thing that I learn or that I discuss a lot in in my policy class that I teach um, is to recognize that frequently there's not really an entirely new concept there. You know, uh, I think there's somebody who's quoted and saying there's nothing new under the sun and. To some degree, that's true. So I think when you have new ideas and you have um, new things that you think you're working on, it's important to approach these things humbly and really look to the fact that even if um, it might be a new concept to you, you might actually be building on work that's already done. And by thinking about things with a new perspective, you might help help take something in a different direction. Um, But it's really recognizing that a lot of concepts are already uh, out there. So thinking about how you can build on what is out there to add fresh perspective as you take something forward and really think about where your value add can be. Um, So to approach things with a humble yet forward-looking perspective.
0: I love that idea. I think it was Newton that said standing on the shoulders of giants.
1: Yes, exactly. Exactly.
0: That's beautiful. Laura, thank you so much for your time today. Is there anything else you'd like to share before we go?
1: I don't think so, except, you know, I I would really love to uh, hear more about what your daughters end up learning in the future and how they end up coming up with climate solutions as well. And, uh, you know, we really we really do need to look to our daughters to to help lead us in this fight against climate change. And I think there's just so much potential for the solutions that are out there in, in our youth. And, you know, I just hope that we're able to provide the supports that, that they need to get there.
0: Well, I'll be sure to share with you whatever I learned.
1: Excellent. Excellent. Thank, thank you, Laura. Thank you, Raj.
0: Before we go, I'm excited to share that we've launched our comic strip, the adventures of Mira and Nexi. You can find the first issue at our website, nexuspmg.com under the original content tab. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.